Welcome to the Red Dirt Nation podcast. My name is Warren Crank. Thanks for listening in. I'm with Trevor Wilson, uh, who's going to share a bit of his story today. But we're in a workspace here in the north of Brizzy. And so if you hear chats going on and all sorts of noise, it's because this is a place where work is happening uh, all the time. But Trev, it's great to be able to chat with you. And I'm just wondering if you could introduce yourself a little bit to us. Hey, Warren. It's great to be here. So I'm 30 years old and I love the Lord and I love adventure and the great outdoors. And I've made myself a bit of a a passion in motorbike racing and adventuring. And so I'm here today to just connect with you and for us to sort of pull apart how that lifestyle looks and how God's been doing his thing in that story. Awesome. Now you can connect with Trev on social media, Insta. It's Godspeed Oz, A-U-S, Godspeed Oz. And on Facey, it's Godspeed Racing. So you'll find him easily enough and he's got quite a bunch of people who are following his story. Mate, just quickly, where did you grow up and tell us a bit of that stuff? Yeah, so I grew up in Brisbane on the south side. So I was a, a local suburban kid. Um, and I went to a school called Westside Christian College and I was there from preschool to grade 12 and that was the awesome experience of my life and um, yeah from there I went to university on the uh, south side of Brisbane at Griffith University um, and that was yeah that's the basis of it. So you're a young fella 30 years old and we're going to talk about your recent adventuring but in your backstory there you've been a teacher for a little while what sort of drew you in that direction and tell us a little bit about um, how long you were doing that and what it was like. Yeah, so I was a high school teacher, so I did that in secondary uh, education. I chose to do that because I had uh, some teachers when I was at school, uh, Ben and Catherine Innes, that were a massive inspiration to me. So I looked at their lifestyle and um, how they connected with their family, how they were in their community, how they were as teachers, and it just really inspired me. And then I looked at the lifestyle of teaching and saw that you could use that anywhere in the world. And I just knew that if God called me to a worldwide capacity, um, this would be a good foundation that he could use for me in that. And I just thought... Um, it's just a good basis for life as well like teaching um, helps with communication and helps um, with working with kids and being a dad and all those things so it has uh, for me I saw it would have a great impact in a lot of other areas of my life that I wanted to grow in. And a shout out to all the teachers listening to this podcast because you uh, you have a big impact in the lives of people so keep on keeping on. Now motorcycles mate when did motorcycles become a thing for you? Yeah, motorcycles became a thing for me when I was a kid. I was at my cousin's farm and dad put me on the front of a um, 250cc Kawasaki farm bike and I still remember I had my feet like sitting over the handlebars and I just remember the wind in my face and I couldn't have smiled anymore. And it was just at that moment, like I think I, um, yeah, I just saw that it was a massive passion of mine and I just, anytime I could get near a bike, I would. Yeah, I grew up on a farm too, and I love motorcycles. We had horses on the farm. It used to be a dairy farm, so we did have to round up cows and such. My brothers love the horses, but I wanted something that I could control better. So uh, motorcycles have been a part of my life pretty much ever since. So we certainly share that passion. Tell me, uh, tell us some of the bikes you've had over the years. Um, so I started with a couple of different colors. So blue is Yamaha. So I had a YZ 250F, a motocross bike, and then I had a WR. Uh, 450F and then I moved to Honda and had some 250s with them and then I went to Suzuki and then I had some a DRZ 400 and then I've been a KTM boy um, for the rest of my time and then I've had yeah, a couple of different 450 EXCs and then I've moved up now to a 500 EXE and then the rally bike uh, that's in Europe that's a Husqvarna. So. 
Okay, sorry people who don't like motorcycles, but uh, for those of us who do, uh, we dig it. Now, uh, you hold, um, have held the record for the fastest double crossing of the Simpson Desert. What bike did you use? And tell us a little bit about that adventure. Yeah, so definitely don't have the record anymore, but I, I was the first person to um, do a double crossing of the Simpson Desert in under 24 hours. So that desert is 1,020 kilometres. Uh, there's 2,600 dunes and... Um, yeah, we a friend and I set off um, at four a.m. in the morning to go do that, and that was on a four fifty. No, that was a four fifty rally factory replica. So it's a big um, specialized bike that's built just for Dakar. So they only make seventy five each year, and then um, I yeah I would manage to find one, and then buy it, and then take it out to the desert and give it a crack. Now, was that when the Dakar dream was emerging or where does that fit in the sort of story of, uh, yeah. of your uh, passion for that race? Yeah, so the Dakar dream had, had begun and that first challenge was um, what I wanted to do to see if I had a mental capacity to do long, hard things. So I'd only ridden a bike three times in the previous year because I'd had um, wrist surgeries and I thought if I go out and do this, then this will be a good test to see when the odds are completely stacked against me what will it be like because I knew that it would only get better after that point because I could train more and so I just went out um, purely just to test my mind just to see if I always thought I had a mind that was you know resilient able to push through barriers but that was the first time that I got to I guess test that proof of concept and go from there. And there was an SAS person out there with you um tell us about that story someone someone said to mention it yeah so um i we met for the first time out in charleville out, out there so i heard um that this guy was heading out to do this and then i got an introduction to him and then he said yeah come along uh, but i didn't tell him that i'd only ridden three times in the previous year and we met um yeah we met in charleville and then we we drove out there and he was 23 years sas his name's scott britnell and he's like a massive inspiration of mine because he um he can ride really quick and consistently and I still remember you know as soon as we headed off into the desert I then went over the first couple of dunes and stacked it and then I just saw his taillight heading off into the distance and um yeah I was like all right <laughs> we're in for a big day so yeah so part of the um the experience I guess is that you're often on your own and you're talking about testing your mental sort of barriers and those sorts of things what goes through your head uh in a situation like that you're largely in the middle of nowhere by yourself uh and you've got to keep going so what what drives you what um what do you do to press on yeah so for me it's it's purpose that drives me um whenever i'm doing something like that that's when i go into my um christian faith toolbox and i have a belief that um it's christ working through me that gives me strength and so in those times i i believe that um whether you call it supernatural strength or just normal strength but it's it's for me it's like a a prayerful time that i ask god to give me the strength to look at whatever challenges ahead and then as i go into it i just trust that um my my mind will stay sharp and i think the place that i i go to is um like it's just this old it's like this deep peace that i just um i kind of just like a, a diesel motor you just keep you just keep trucking and then you get a big goal and then you just break it down to a really small manageable section and um i might just look at the next 15 minutes and i go what can i do for the next 15 minutes and then i just focus on what things i have to look at and then i go you know the next hour what what can i do and then i just get a big goal and break it down to small bits and that's been a really good secret of mine to kind of 
you know get through large like if rather than looking i've got a 24-hour day ahead of me i go well what's next and i break the track down into sections and i just work on those sections you're listening to the red dot nation podcast and you might be someone who starting out in business or you do have a big goal may not not be an adventure sport or anything same sort of device might be helpful to you at the moment that yes the goal looks big and the, the journey looks huge but break it down into pieces and um and just do one at a time so here's someone who's had to go there to some pretty difficult places mentally and uh, trevor's just sharing how he gets through it now were you always an adventurous person um or where did this passion for doing extreme things sort of enter your life yeah i always um saw that i was really different from everyone around me so like at school everyone else would be quite sensible and I'd be like bouncing off the walls and I always saw that I had more energy and more and and had passion but just in a different way and then I remember looking through all my report cards just to try and learn a bit more about how I was perceived by my teachers and all of them literally all of them would say Trevor has great potential if he'd just um, slow down and look at the task at hand and work through it and um, and then I just saw in that that there's obviously something let's say if I apply it from a God perspective, if it's the parable of the talents, God, I just believed, gave me a talent. And my question was, how do I utilize that talent to, you know, be used by him? Um, And so then I went on that journey to discover what that was like. And then I obviously knew that I loved outdoors. I loved nature. I loved that aspect of things. And then I loved um, things that involved like speed and, you know, cornering and, um, you know, like intensity. And I realized that I just, I combined those two and sort of looked at things around that. They called him Tricky Trevor, apparently. It was his nickname at school. But, uh, you know, again, school doesn't suit everybody and it doesn't let everyone's gifts shine. So sometimes those report cards don't really reflect where your life's going. So be encouraged if you're in school now and you're struggling with it because um, it's just the launching pad, really, for for what uh, you can do when you discover what you're really made to do. Now, I want to press into the Dakar race now. Um, Those of you who don't know about it, it is one of the hardest, most dangerous races in the world. So this isn't a small uh, thing we're talking about. I mean, double crossing of the Simpson Desert's a big deal. This is uh, something else again. So give us a bit of background to the race, the history of it, and what drew you to it. Yes, the race has been going on for um, just over 40 years now and it started originally going from Paris to Dakar and Senegal. So the race is 8,000 kilometres long and it goes for two weeks and it used to go through the Sahara Desert Um, and then there was uh, some competitors that got uh, shot by terrorists and then the race then moved to South America and then it was there for a number of years and then... um, and then it moved to Saudi Arabia, which was when I competed in it. And the race um, yeah, is known as the toughest motorsport race in the world. And it's the second largest under the Formula One in Europe and um, in the north side of the world. It's, it's absolutely huge. In Australia, not as many people know about it. But um, you basically have to do like a qualifying like world championship race. And then you have to build a portfolio and get a ranking. And, and then send a big portfolio into them and request that you can race it and then they have to grant you you know they give you a letter and say yep we grant you to race it and then you then you go for it but yeah 
I'm a big fan of Jack Miller, who's a MotoGP rider in Australia. And it's interesting that most Australians haven't heard of Jack Miller. Even if he wins a race, a MotoGP race, it doesn't really make the newspaper over here. It's interesting that the northern part of the world has these um, real passions to follow these sports that we don't think about too much. So, yeah, it's a big deal in the northern part of the world. Now, people die in the race most years, I think. Um, were there any casualties in the year that you took it on? Yeah, there was, unfortunately, um, Edward and uh, Paulo. And one of the guys, like, just the night before, like, I was borrowing tools off him and he'd won the category that I was in the year before. So, um, yeah, there was not just deaths. Like, there's, like, proper serious injuries. Like, a friend uh, broke his shoulder, another one broke his back, another one he was unconscious in the bottom of a dune. I had to drag him out and then call the chopper in for him. Um and then he, he came too, but he was coughing up everything and he airdropped like five meters off of June. And then like literally like a minute or so later, then a, this big red Kamaz truck just came roaring through there. And if I hadn't have dragged him out and moved his bike, then he would have been run over because they wouldn't have seen him. So there's just like a, a, a real scary side of the race that I knew was there. But when I was there, I was like, this is next level. Like, cause there's only 158 riders and out of that, like two passed away and easily 20% of the field then chop it out with serious injuries as well so there's there's some there's a quite a other side to Dakar that you know is serious I guess but it helps to see the perspective like um the danger is real uh, but I do love the fact that there are people that despite the dangers want to push and want to press into this and I, I admire it myself anyway so a lot of people go in with big teams and big sponsorships and those sorts of things. That's not your story. So Trev, tell us a little bit about how you raced that race. Um, so to get to the start line was a massive journey because it used to be called Trevor Wilson Racing and I used to be a teacher and then I started up a waterproofing company to help uh, pay for racing. And even that journey, like to do all the qualifying races just cost me so much. And I ended up at one point, like four or five years ago, being like, in the hole and just going like how can i ever do dakar if i'm struggling to buy you know race motors like a bike from europe you know and i was flying down to newcastle like every weekend to train then going to south america then going to dubai and like having a, a race calendar to get the portfolio i needed um and then i got to this place that i just fully surrendered it to god and then um god gave me the idea to call it godspeed racing um and because and then put john 316 all over the bike because i saw there was a football player tim to that had john 316 under his eyes and went to the nfl playoffs and that verse got googled 75 million times and i just thought well if i use this race put verses all over it it can just be used for god and then after that point i had doors just fling open and that just showed me that that was how god wanted it to be done from the start and i felt silly that i hadn't fully surrendered it to him then and then since then um like even a month before i was about to head off to dakar we um had an opportunity to pick up some more contracts at work and it, the business went six times the size of what it had been and and that had matched up with a journal entry that i had like a year ago a year before that saying how I wish the business to look before I headed off to Dakar and I just kind of saw this full circle of um, God taking me on a journey to to help me to surrender everything and then after surrendering it then God supporting the, that vision and calling and, and bringing the provision um, and obviously like it's yeah so it's just it's a blessed feeling I guess. Now some people listening maybe don't know what John 3.16 is so yeah. tell us what that is and why it means so much to you. Um, so John 3.16 summarizes 
who God is in a really lovely way. And it just means for God so loved the world um, that he sent his only begotten son um, to die on the cross for us. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I love that verse because it's saying like God loves you. Here's, the, here's what he's done to prove what he how he loves you and then this is the outcome of that love and that's it just has a really nice flow that people can see like john three sixteen isn't about um the religious church it's not about people that may have hurt you it's not about the bad things christians may have done it's just a simple love story that um jesus loves you and it's um and there's a there's a verb that comes with it and then there's a call to action from your side or from anyone's side so good. We're listening to Trevor Wilson, our privateer for the Dakar race. And uh, he's telling a bit of a story about how he got the resources. Now we got the support he needed to get there. But you were pretty much by yourself in through that race. Is that correct? So tell us a little bit about what that meant day in and day out. Yeah, so um, I had a friend of mine, um, Wade, who was hanging around for the first week and it was just good to have a friend that you could see, but he wasn't allowed to help with anything. So to do it in the category that I was in, I chose to do Dakar in the hardest category that exists, which is uh, Malmoto, which means you have one box and two spare wheels to go 8,000 kilometers. You have to set up your own tent. You have to look after all your um, nutrition. You have to look up, um, service your bike. So you'd race for, say, 12 to 14 hours each day. And then you'd have to strip the bike down, service it, do your brake fluids, oil, um, check through everything, bolt check, put it all back together again, load your road book for the next day, do your navigation, get your food, set up your tent, um, reload all your, all your, bat, all your um, jacket and that, clean and repair any gear and then um, try and get some sleep and then you get up and then you go to your rider's briefing and then yeah, you get up, or fill up the bike and then you go, you head out like 4am or 5am the next morning and you know, you go do another 800 to 1000 kilometres just for the 14 days in a row. Wow, it's Iron Man sort of stuff. Actually, speaking of Iron Man, you've just been to Cairns to compete up there. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll get back to the Dakar. Yeah, um, so I think it was like ten days ago now. um, Up in Cairns, I did a full Iron Man, and I I did that one in I guess the hardest way I could find. So that was my first ever triathlon that I've ever done, and I chose to make my first ever try a full Iron Man. And it was a really fun experience. It was, I did it in 13 hours and two minutes. And yeah, we did it with a group of friends and um, partners. And we just had an awesome time. And it was just a great day. So <laughs> so good. So the Dakar race, you're a finisher, um, and which is tremendous. What did it feel like actually to cross that line? Um, the, the crossing over the start line was probably better than the finish line. Because for me, the backstory just to get to that start line was six years of like trials and challenges and big challenges and then I didn't mind what happened after that start line because I knew that um, God would do his thing and I just firmly believed that if God wanted me to finish that get to that finish line I would if he didn't then I wouldn't and so um, getting to the finish line was I guess I was filled with gratitude that God wanted to complete that story and um, it honestly did feel great and that and I do remember I paced myself quite slow the whole race and then on that last day I was on the phone to a friend before the start of the stage and they said to me um, make sure you don't race this make sure you just get yourself to the finish I'm like I'm not gonna race it and they're like I know you like <laughs> make sure you don't and then I was like all right and then I went out and then I remember I think I overtook like 26 people on that last stage and I went past a friend and he was like what was going on then like I remember it was like 
I was at 120 k's an hour just doing this massive slide um, turn and just like did this wide overtake and I just I just let it rip for that last stage because I had to play it safe in that category um, and so it was really nice like I guess feeling the the that the feeling of going race pace but also then getting to the finish line and celebrating with my friends that I'd done that journey with and I think you look back and you have this commonality between everyone because you all know what you've been through and I would say there's nothing like there's no feeling like finishing Dakar the only thing similar would be like falling in love but that's that's a whole nother level as well well we might as well talk about falling in love because something's happened for you a little bit recently Trev tell us about how you met because I think it's a stellar story (laughs) Yeah, I think this is kind of how my life works. I have these really funny things that happen. But I, um, after Dakar, I, I, I built this vehicle that has um, Godspeed on the side and John 316. And so then I started traveling around Australia. And I was traveling from uh, Tasmania to Brisbane. And I was on the M1 motorway at 100 k's an hour. And then um, to the left of me, there was this little red Getz with a, a surfboard on the roof. And then very pretty girl in the car. And she drove up next to it while we were on the highway. And she was just like laughing, looking at the vehicle. And I thought, well, she's either like a non-Christian and thinks I'm being a real weird person or she's a Christian and loves the Lord and, and is like, likes that as well. And our cars drove around each other for like 10 minutes on the highway. And, um, and then she took the exit and we just like looked across each other and I gave a thumbs up and then she gave a little wave. And then, um, and then I drove the whole way home thinking about her. And I, and I even remembered her license plate because I'm like, I wonder if I'll ever see her again. Because there was something that happened in that moment that I just, I couldn't put a finger on it. And then, um, and then I thought about it the whole way home. And then like two nights later on my Godspeed Racing message, there was a message from her and it said, hey, like it's um, so-and-so. I've, um, you know, just want to say I'm really inspired by your story and just keep going. It's super encouraging. And I was like, no way, it's the Getz girl. And then we chatted on the phone a couple of times and then did a couple of Zoom calls. And then, um, yeah, and then like I flew down to Sydney and, she picked me up from the airport with like two surfboards on the roof and we went surfing and we were both just tripped out because once we heard each other's stories and how she lives her life for purpose and um and the humanitarian and development studies undergrad degree she's got and she's worked as a worship pastor and with soul survivor and um she's got a very i guess missional sort of out way that she reaches and um and i just kind of looked at her life and i was like this makes sense like with how i've lived my life and my story and i just could see god using our lives in a larger capacity and um i guess it's it's like that saying they say like if you just stick to your lane the right person will come by you and i was like i literally stuck to my lane and, and it happened so it was funny well i proposed to my wife on victoria road a busy road in sydney so so good things can happen on on motorways we're going to move to um, some of the things that I often ask people when I interview them, and that is, where do you have you been in Australia that has really blown you away? Something that sort of stuck with you from around here? Um, the Daintree Rainforest, I think, is one of those places because you have you have this scenery where the mountains meet the sea, and you have these really large um, rainforests you know subtropical rainforest and then it meets like nice white beaches and then you've obviously got the reef that's a bit further out to sea but i think like when i when i see that you have these often you have these nice moments where the light will shine through and it just causes this like everglow everywhere um and so when i look at scenery like that i just and i guess i love it because the complexity of a rainforest it's you know like you could plant a tree and you know say it's quite simple but then how a rainforest works together um and how diverse it is as well it's yeah i i love it 
it's David Attenborough's most favourite place in the world, the, the, that part of tropical North Queensland. Now, hashtag, what's your endgame? Uh, you'll see that a bit if you go through Trev's stuff, and we're going to ask him now, what's that about? Uh, the hashtag, what's your endgame, is um, the understanding that at some point we will all go to our deathbed, and not to be too morbid, but we get to a point that... Um, We'll be at the end of our life looking back at it and we ask ourselves the question, was the life that I lived worthwhile? Did I live true to my purpose and did I go all in with whatever I felt I had? And so the what's your end game is to encourage people to ask that question and to not get too caught up in what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and to fast forward and go, when I'm 99 years old and I'm looking back at my life, you know, what's the things that I thought I could have dropped away and what's the things that I really wished I poured my heart into? Um, Because from that point then i fast forward that you've got your what's your end game also is that as a christian i believe that we'll at some point stand before god and he'll say um well done good and faithful servant or he won't and i would love for god to say well done good and faithful servant and um yeah i think my encouragement in that is just for each person to ask that question of themselves of like do i have a purpose to my life and um if god's real like um could he help me in that or if god's real how could i work with him in that um yeah, if you want to listen to the last podcast, it was with Roz Holloway and she was talking about death and dying in, in the post chat that I had with her. Having been at the deathbed of hundreds of people, she said, people never say, oh, I should have worked harder at the office or whatever. It's always about purpose and it's always about people as people think back over their life. So it's great wisdom from Trev at the younger end of life, which is so good. Now we're wanting a wisdom drop, mate, if you're prepared to give us one. Uh, what's one life lesson that you've learned that you'd like to pass on to people who are listening in today? Um, The one life lesson that I've learned is what you think is your barrier um, isn't your barrier um, and what you think you can't get through. It's not that you can't, it's that you haven't found a way yet. Um, And often a, a positive mindset can actually change your body's biochemistry to get through things that you saw were once obstacles. Um, and I think, yeah, the life lesson that I've seen in, in my world is I never thought I was capable of doing things. And yes, I, I probably wasn't, but it was God, God obviously helping me on that journey. But yeah, my encouragement would be um, to whatever you think you can't do, just, just revisit that and Um, give yourself a bit of time to get a big goal break it down small and just start chipping away at the old block Um, because it was a cool thing that I um, heard from like a Will Smith um, like speech that he did that his his dad got him and his brother to build this big brick wall and then they just went off at their dad going we're never going to build this and he just made his kids build it over four years and it's just brick by brick and I think a lot of life isn't necessarily about trying to take big leaps it's just going when I wake up today what's one brick that I could do that could head me in a direction that will help align me to my purpose or my spiritual calling or whatever it looks like or if I find God's interesting what's one person I could just chat to just ask that, those questions and whatever that looks like I just would encourage you to just do the first brick and take the first step in lining your purpose to your life. You're listening to the Red Dirt Nation podcast. My name's Warren Crank. I'm with Trevor Wilson here. We're about to say Godspeed to you. you. But I just want to talk about uh, Godspeed, mate. It's something I use often when I'm signing off on my emails and things. What does Godspeed mean and, and why is it a, a thing for you? Yes, yeah, so Godspeed means may God prosper you on your journey. Um, and I would love everyone to feel that God's prospering them on their journey because he's for them and he's, um, yeah, he's excited about it. And so I always say Godspeed with things because it, it's just like a good positive way to be like, go on, like get stuck into it and have a great day. 
Well, that's our hope for you. Godspeed, hey. Thanks for listening in and we'll catch you down the track.